You were not recording all that? No. That was solid gold. <laughs> Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Center Ed Teachings podcast. We've got a, a different show than last week. We went on for quite a bit talking about the policy mandates and updates, and Roberta and Courtney did a great job kind of filling us in where to go. And so this week we wanted to take a little bit lighter of a note. So we have the lights dimmed. We have a large TV screen that's going to play movies for us as we have this conversation. And we're going to talk about media representations of schools, teachers, and students and the impact that this has on schools and what educators can do going forward. And so for this discussion, I have the beautifully bearded Brian. Hey, y'all. And joining us for the first time is Chloe. Hey. Um, so Chloe is kind of the, the spark for this podcast because she's the one who really brought to everyone at CPET's attention the role media plays. So we're really happy that she's here for this conversation. Um, so my first question is, why is it important to talk about how teachers, students, and schools are represented in the media? Whether this means social media, movies, TV shows, advertisements, what have you, why? Sure. I mean, well, rep- media representation is an enormous issue across the boards. Um, uh, in general, uh, we see presentations of people, places, and things in media, particularly like popular media, mass media, um, and that discursive reality, if I can get academic right away, <laughs> um, that notion of there's a conversation out there about what a thing or a person looks like, acts like, sounds like. And a lot of times we learn what things are meant to look like, sound like, act like, um, through the images we get and the, the, the discourses that we get through media. Um, and so there's this notion that this, um, these media presentations and representations um, have a kind of an interesting relationship with a lived, you know, physical reality. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I probably, you know, just to reinforce that, it definitely re- looks at how what we expect and what reality kind of provides to us when we have those moments of just like feeling so removed, like being shocked because something doesn't exist in a space that media told us would exist in that space. Like just the feeling that students and teachers probably go through is you're being kind of socialized through media to say, you know, when I walk into this area or when I walk into this space or when I meet these types of people, this is what I should expect. Um, and if I don't get that, then maybe there's something wrong or something off. Or maybe I did something wrong. Um, yeah. So it just kind of reinforces that. Yeah, and aside from the things that we expect, it's sort of the right. people we expect ourselves to be. Right. Like, if I don't conform to this mm-hmm. conversation about what a teacher looks like, what a student looks like, then um, I am in some way, you know, um, out of the ordinary or right. abnormal or problematic, mm-hmm. even. Well, and I think, like, just building on what both of you have said, the fact that, like, schooling is one of the common experiences, right, supposedly in the U.S., so it paints a picture of what that experience is supposed to look like and can either um, then kind of augment that reality be if you're existing in that, or it creates this huge, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but kind of tension with what you come into reality if it doesn't meet that, and that, I think, has profound impact. Right. Um, So, I mean, getting into things, let's talk about how schools are presented in media. And when I mean schools, I mean the the space itself, the institution itself, not so much the people that embody it, because I think there's a slight distinction there. Um, So, Brian, I'm going to start with you, because 
we, we were reliving our glory days from college and you were kind of filling me in on all that I had missed. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's so right. can we talk about media representations of college as maybe an example of the representation of an educational space? Sure. I mean, the, the a classic example, well, I don't know if it's a classic example, but um, <laughs> if you think about, imagine in your mind's eye, what does a college look like? Uh, it's probable that you have some idea of what a college looks like because you've seen it in on TV or you've seen it in movies. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about the leafy green space and, like, stone buildings and, you know, um, just, you know, light, <laughs> for example. Um, but then if I just hop on the one train here and I go downtown to, to you know, Borough of Manhattan Community College, like, it is a one-building campus that mm-hmm. is, you know, essentially a city block, but it's not leafy and green and and gothic or anything but Mm -hmm. it is college so in terms of like what are the expectations for what a college like ought to look like in terms of the physical plant like there's this romantic you know notion like and I don't know if we can run it all the way back to places like Oxford and Cambridge and you know uh, the the continental universities, but you know we try to replicate those in America, and they're certainly part of the American discourse about what college should look like. Yeah, what's interesting about that is when you think about those leafy colleges that you're talking about, like a Harvard and Princeton, they were actually very similar to the Borough College, like mm-hmm. that you were just talking about. And it wasn't until the beginning of like the 19th or 20th century where it's like, hey, we need to actually create this architectural tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the things you had also mentioned is that there are these representations of these spaces and so now colleges are in oh, yeah. this facilities race <laughs> yeah my favorite one right now so i'm from louisiana and uh, lsu louisiana state university has recently put in something of a water park essentially for the students it's a it includes um uh, pools that spell out in giant letters lsu and even a lazy river uh, kind of attraction um and you know it's kind of a boondoggle in terms of like politics in louisiana because it's many millions of dollars to put in this water park thing but there's this notion that if you don't have a water park, students aren't going to want to come to your school because there's this expectation of what the physical plant of a college is meant to be. Um, and, um, you know, we see it in, like, sports and recreation sort of facilities um, at universities uh, across the country right now. It's like, if it's not, like, super shiny and comfy and fun, um, then, you know, what is it? And then, then, of course, or if it's not, like, storied and, uh, you know, ivy hanging from the walls. But these resources, Chloe, I mean, they're not just relegated to the college level. We often see in movies or TV shows representations of different schools with different resources. Yeah, absolutely. You have some schools who have, like, these really nice pools, you know, high schools with really nice pools and high-tech gym equipment and, you know, super green grass everywhere. You're like, is that real? Um, (laughs) You know, it's like, wow, this looks amazing. And if you haven't been to a high school yet or gone to visit a high school, it kind of creates this image of, like, wow, high school is going to be beautiful. Like, it's Mm going to be this this very, like, um, uh, like, full body experience of like the the air is clean and the grass is green like it is greener on the other side like once I graduate from middle school like it's just gonna go up from here and that's it's not always the reality like that's not how all schools look like and yet they keep showing these same images um of these schools for example um, I went to Pepperdine for undergrad and they filmed Zoe 101 there and (laughs) a lot of people would come to the school and they knew Zoe 101 was filmed there and they'd be like wait I thought the beach was right next to the quad area 
And they're like, absolutely not. Like, it's like a mile away from yeah. our quad area, if not more. But just how it sets it up, how television can make you think something is so much closer than what it really is. Or something is so much more big or spacious or, you know, bright, as yeah. Brian kind of mentioned before, than what it really is. It creates these expectations, kind of going back to what we said earlier, of what to expect. And then when you get there, you wonder, what happened? Did they move it? Did they change it? Like, why was there is there a funding issue like yeah. why can't we afford this like are we not worth it um so it makes you it starts attaching a lot of things based off these expectations of what students think they'll see to now even their own worth or their community's worth like why don't why won't our community support us in that way if they have that yeah. but honestly what what school is that they never really mm-hmm. say what it is um uh, they never really say like where this the area is. It's never super overt. It's always these sometimes made up sp- like spaces where yeah. the houses yeah, yeah, you know yeah. are gated and everything's green and <laughs> it's well, just not reality. It's funny you should mention that. Like so, my high school was a was one building in a you know the middle of a city. Right. Um, and when I got there, I was like super disappointed because uh, now that I think about it, like I learned about what high school ought to look like from. Um, films that were made in Southern California. Mm. And for me, that, like, open <laughs> campus with breezeways right. and everything, it's like, I just kind of, like, you know, they make a lot of movies in L.A., that's what high school looks like. Right. But, no, it's yeah. it's it's a lot of stairs yeah, is what my high school yeah, was. Yeah, a lot of times those high schools are colleges, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and they yeah. have completely different resources than high schools are given. Right. So, and, and typically they're private colleges to yeah. top that off. So, sure. you know, I've seen a lot of people filming even at, um, City College, mm-hmm. um, like I think the the TV show uh, Kimmy Schmidt, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, they film it there often. Um, but they even called that Columbia, so they didn't even come. <laughs> to so it's like you know people get in they're like, wait, where's this? Where's the stones that you guys mm-hmm. have out front? Not that's not that's not what we have. That's not that's not our gate. That's not our our actual symbol. Mm-hmm. But everyone is seeing it as such, and so it it kind of gets kind of weird because like you said, you have these expectations when you show up, yeah. but that's not the reality. And it's, it's, if you're looking at the resources, you're thinking, oh, well, we should have, you know, if I take mm-hmm. a gym class, we're going to have top-of-the-notch gym equipment. That's not, that may not be... Or a gym. Exactly, or Correct. a gym. Yeah. <laughs> no, ca- exactly. Cafe gym to tours. Right. Yeah, well, but I mean, I think, like, what we're... We're starting to get at is one of the things that sticks out about schools to me in these rep- media representations is the social class dynamics, yeah. right? You said that, like, a lot of times these schools exist in kind of this ethereal space, but it's not an ethereal space. It's suburbia, right? Yeah. Everyone has a two or like three story right. home with a gated community exactly. and a lawn, and everything is gleaming and perfect. But then there's also this representations of mm-hmm. urban schools right. where all the homes are filled with mm-hmm. like trash across the streets or like graffiti tagged on all the buildings and all these things and mm-hmm. it's it it like uses this physical image to place you in this is what this class is and this is the school for this right. class of people mm-hmm. like not even entertaining the idea that there could be some difference there right yeah yeah um, so I guess building off that last part, thinking about social class and getting into like who actually comprises these schools, I mean, how are teachers and students presented in the media and kind of what ways does this shape like anticipative experiences, which you guys have already hinted at a little bit, and then subsequently like the lived experience? Um, yeah, um, well, I actually really want to be part of this conversation because once upon a time I taught a class. It was um, uh, basically like Education 101. I, I called the class to so say, you think you want to be a teacher, huh? And um, one of the projects... Wait, what, the huh was officially in the title? <laughs> well, I mean, it was. I think it was actually called Practices and Principles of, 
education uh, or something like that. But um, okay. <clears throat> well, one of the projects that I gave students was uh, um, for each meeting, a different team of students would come in and present some um, image of teachers and teaching from you know from mass media. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we were getting at was this ideas. Um, there are a lot of understandings about what it looks like to be a teacher, how teachers physically appear, how they behave, etc., that we learn from um, uh, pop culture, that we learn mm-hmm. from mass media. Um, and so we see like certain sort of like types or archetypes or, or as, you know, some people call them scripts of teaching. Um, and this is what a teacher could look like or should look like or might look like. Um, and a lot of those scripts, I think, are incredibly problematic because, well, number one, it doesn't show the reality of teaching, So, yeah. but I get it. It's fiction, so it doesn't necessarily have to be you know, uh, uh, realistic. Um, but then also the idea that there are certain sort of um, messages that I think really can be harmful to teachers and students if the teachers internalize them and say, this is how I have to be as a teacher because that's what teaching is. And so can I actually give us a point to talk about that with? I mean, I think one of the archetypes that's most well-known is kind of this teacher-as-hero figure. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is an op-ed from the New York Times, which is in the show notes if you want to read it in the entirety. As a heads-up, there is some problematizing with how this teacher frames like students of color. Um, But they make a point when they're talking about the movie Freedom Riders that's actually, I think, pretty powerful and speaks to a bit what you're saying. And they write, The great misconceptions of these films is not that actual schools are more chaotic and decrepit. Many schools in poor neighborhoods are clean and orderly, yet still don't have enough teachers or money for supplies. No, the most dangerous message such films promote is that what schools really need are heroes. This is the myth of the great teacher. Films like Freedom Writers portray teachers more as missionaries than professionals, eager to give up their lives and comfort for the benefit of others without need of compensation. Miss Gruel sacrifices money, time, and even her marriage for her job. Her behavior is not represented as obsessive or self-destructive, but driven, necessary even. She is forced into making these sacrifices by the aggressive neglect of the school's administrators who won't even let her take books from the book room. The film applauds Miss Gruel's dedication, but also implies that she has no other choice in order to be a good teacher. She has to be a hero. Mm-hmm. Freedom Riders is the Hillary Swank one, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, just getting all my white saviors in order. <laughs> um, you know, so <laughs> I, I, I see that, that script of teacher as missionary or teacher as savior. And like I, I come back a lot to teacher as white savior just because mm-hmm. it happens all the damn time. But also the um, idea that um, uh, we have to give all of our lives and our energy and even our money mm-hmm. um, to, uh, to the work, otherwise we're not doing it right, is pervasive. To the point where, so I started my teaching career as a Teach for America Corps member, and as I was being um, educated, let's say, by them, I'm not indoctrinated, um, <laughs> there was this notion that if you weren't single-handedly changing the world in your classroom, you weren't doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we could say that that's just the idea of um, getting us hyped and giving us examples of what amazing teachers can accomplish. But I know that other core members and I took away this notion that, oh, you mean I'm, I'm just teaching? Then I'm not mm-hmm. teaching. I'm not, or that air quotes, listener. Right. I'm not doing it right <laughs> because I'm not, you know, organizing a trip to Washington or painting that mural on the side of the building or whatever. And I sleep six hours a night instead of four. Correct, correct. But but I those 
messages were not only taught to me through the media, but then taught to me through a, a course of teacher education. Mm-hmm. So they get the, that, like I said, that discursive reality informs the material reality, and they just have this cycle where they continue to, to mm-hmm. intensify. Right. Yeah, I think, and we're talking about that sometimes in underserved communities, but one of the kind of lingering impressions that I've always had is Mr. Feeney. From Boy Meets World. Yeah. And think think about on this show, <laughs> Mr. Feeney not only spends all his time at the school and doing this, when he's home, he's still teaching because he actually lives next door, <laughs> and every time they need him, they just call his name and he appears. Right. Mr. Feeney doesn't have a wife in the show, or at least not that I remember, right? Like, his sole purpose is that. And so I think going in as a teacher, it's this idea that if I do anything else, mm-hmm. I, I'm not doing my job. But... We'll, we'll pause on the savior for a second. Oh, go ahead, Chloe. Yeah, I think Sorry. it kind of, I mean, you mentioning Mr. Feeney, it kind of brings in this whole, like, deficit model. Like, kind of building off what Brian was saying, but then to you, to now talk about kind of, like, the clock puncher. Like, mm-hmm. every time they would call his name, yes, he would appear, but he'd be like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what do you want? Like, he was extremely over mm-hmm. giving a lot to the students. Like, and it was very overt, mm-hmm. but and yet he still did it. So they, they kind of talk about that tension a little bit in the show and that they show students, like, your teachers are annoyed if you yeah. <laughs> ask too much of them. But nevertheless, if you call, they'll be there. So, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Nevertheless, like, like you said, every time they said his name, and I, I used to wonder, like, how, how did he know they were, like, was he always in his backyard? How did that work <laughs> out? But they never talked about that. You really even never saw his backyard. You'd always see him, and he's like, yes, what do you want? Like, what, yeah. do you, what, what, what now? And he knew they were troubled students, air quote, um, because, you know, they'd always get into something, he and his <laughs> friend Sean, or it'd be his older brother. Who yeah, thought, yeah, right, yeah, yeah Will. Um, well, actually, that, was that his name on the show, Will? or I know that was his name in Will. I, like, yeah, I don't remember life. the names um, except for Feeny. But, but yeah, like, they, the family in itself, Mr. Feeny knew. He had yeah. a history with the parents. So he was aware of things, and so he was always there. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, he was kind of this clock puncher in that he was overtly clear, like, oh, out of sight of class, like, you should not be bothering me. And yet he would still show up. So it, it almost kind of brought up, like I said, that tension of... Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be bothering me, but if you are bothering me, it's my kind yeah. of responsibility as an educator to kind of be there for you when you need me. So. Well, that's a that's an interesting way you put it. It makes me think that 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 archetype of the teacher um, is the flip side of the hero teacher, right. but not just. Um, I mean, obviously, like the teacher who gives everything and the teacher who doesn't give everything, right. but also that the fact that you need the hero teacher is because mm-hmm. for the most mm-hmm. part, right. teachers are just, you know, counting down to retirement or counting right. down to, to three o'clock, exactly. you know? Yeah, yeah. Or they don't always. have the right attitude. Right. Exactly. And right, you get right, someone right. with a new attitude and all of a sudden education is yeah. fixed. Right, and even, it, like, um, uh, uh, an example from, say, like, Dead Poets Society mm-hmm. where it's like, the teachers, it's not that they don't care, it's right. just that this is the way you do it and it mm-hmm. takes some sort of heroic, um, genre-bending, mold-breaking <laughs> teacher to really get through to students, otherwise you're just memorizing Latin so the but but that teacher who is smart and the Latin teacher who is smart and dedicated and and warns off the Robin Williams character like you know conformity is a most important thing here or an important thing here like even though he cares he's still just kind of we're just doing it the way we're meant to do it or the way it's always been done sort of thing 
And that's why we need the heroes, because all the rest of the teachers are just here to, to get get paid. Right. Because that's what do with, happens. We do the paid. minimum. <laughs> do, or just do the expectation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and we have another archetype that we need to talk about, but I just want to add in, like, I always find it so interesting that whenever people discuss these movies, they never discuss what happens to the savior teacher. Right. right? So, like, in Freedom Riders, <laughs> that teacher, once those kids graduated, left yeah, and went yeah. and taught at the college level. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams didn't even make it the entire year in Dead Poets Society. Yeah. Right? Like, and so it's this idea that we need something that we know is, like, not something that can right. be sustained. Right, right, exactly. right, right. To happen all the time and yeah. those who are able to... Yeah. But, I mean, that's an important thing, though, that that sort of commitment of, of energy, of time, of material resources is not sustainable. Yeah. Yet, that's what a lot of teachers think they're meant to do. And then when they feel drained, then they're like, well, I'm not good enough because I can't be the savior. Right. Well, it's because it's a, because you're watching a fairy tale, man. <laughs> right. And also, I think it gives them to the students to say then, like, well, if my teacher isn't this way, right. then they're yeah. not a great teacher, so I shouldn't engage. And, and or if the school didn't give me a teacher who's like this, that means I'm not worth the time. Right. Um, because you have movies where you see these teachers who are seemingly, you know, just great teachers and not seen as saviors, but they're typically with the kids who are in uh, AP classes or something like that, or the, the high, you know, fast track, whatever level of, of education of, oh, we're smart, so this is why the, the school allocated this person to be with us, to challenge us. Um, and in still a very normative way, you know, they're not doing anything extraordinary. They're just meeting mm-hmm. the students where they're at. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, those teachers have the resources. Those teachers uh, somehow get the time. I don't know how that works, but nevertheless, you have these students in these other classrooms who are like, well, if I don't have this teacher, then, like, what does that mean about me and what does that mean about the school's resources, et cetera? Yeah, no, and sorry that we're kind of belaboring this point, but that just reminds me, like, when I was a teacher... Um, in Detroit, I bought my students composition notebooks because that's how we were going to do like our reading logs and things like this. And I had a student say to me like, oh, this is like freedom writers. Like we're going to do this because the conception was that there was a white guy like yeah. handing out composition <laughs> notebooks. Like that's what it would become. Like that yeah. was what the right. expectation was. And I was like, well, yeah, we're going to do some free writing, but like, we're also going to be doing our reading logs. You're going to take your notes right. in here. Like, um, anyway, but there, uh, Brian, I think you're the best one to talk Isn't about this. <laughs> there's, there's another archetype of the teacher that kind of gets out of this uh, binary, the savior, clock puncher, mm-hmm. and that is, for lack of a better word, I guess, the deviant Well, teacher. I mean, let's, let's stick with the word for a second. And, like, when you say deviant, deviant is this, this normative claim, right? Mm-hmm. You're doing it wrong if you do it in this kind of certain way. And in this case, we're using that as a shorthand for teachers who say, you know, drink or gamble mm-hmm. or um, or are, are very sexualized. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so well, uh, but I th- but I don't think it's just that they drink or that they gamble. It's mm-hmm. that it's like a hyperactivity. Right, right, right. No, no, no. Yeah, because there can't a, be a teacher that would just like have a glass of wine at night. Like, right, like that would never be portrayed in the media. But the teacher who has like who has the, a fifth, the, or has the, or, <laughs> or the teacher, desk. or teacher has, <laughs> has the coffee cup full of wine right. at right. the desk. Yeah. Right. So I mean, you know, not for nothing. There's that whole Cameron Diaz movie that's just called Bad Teacher. Um, and which they the, then tried to make into a TV series. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but like this, this kind of uh, uh, character of the the teacher as the the the, the booze hound or the hungover teacher mm-hmm. or whatever is just a really really um, common one that that you know is just kind of out there for for students in particular to see and think like oh man like it, is that who I should expect to walk into the classroom, but I think a more um, a more 
like legit challenging one is when we start to talk about um, teachers as um, you know objects of desire or mm-hmm. as um, problematic desirers of sexual activity with students. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the kind of the lightest touch of this for me is there's an SNL skit that Tina Fey is the teacher and Justin Bieber is the student. Um, and she goes into like fantasy land and Justin Bieber like sings songs to her and whatever. And it's, you know, it's very funny. Um, but then there are also more um, sort of tragic presentations, let's say, of that same um, discourse of the young female teacher and mm-hmm. the male student um, mm-hmm. who engage in some sort of, um, you know, sexual interaction or sexual conduct. And, um, you know, for obvious reasons, these sorts of interactions are, in the real world, are extremely problematic. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's a, a thing that's out there that's sort of more salacious scripts of, of well it's part of what also carves the school place as this like sexualized and possibly over sexualized place um but i think something that i found interesting from talking with you chloe was that like i always saw these media representations as female teachers mm-hmm. preying on male students but okay. apparently there's a whole genre where it's the yeah. other way around yeah absolutely where there's it's the male teachers preying on student you know uh female students and it's I don't know even if it's just female students, uh, but for example, like shows like Lifetime, like the mm-hmm. entire channel, um, they have, typically it's like the coach, um, mm-hmm. like the male coach who's, you know, just doing a little bit too much with students and then ultimately changes into something more um, where you'll see like, beware your male teachers, don't be alone with them, don't yeah. go into a closed room or they had this um, TV show, 90210, they did like a remake of it. Um, and it was, again, it was with an English teacher, though, this time. Uh, one of the students, one of the female students, went into his classroom for additional help, and it, it turned into something more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have this, this power dynamic where they, sh- they kind of show, like, teachers have more power if you were to, you know, tell on them or, or go to someone and talk about how uncomfortable you were. Um, you will be kind of like pushed to the side for students. And then, at the, uh, you know, alternatively, they show where students... Teacher, it never happened, but students use that as like a leverage against teachers to say, if you don't give me this grade, I'm going to tell someone that you did something like this to me. So it, it shows like this weird tension between power between students and teachers and appropriate and inappropriate spaces, giving these kind of building off of our earlier, the savior, you know, extra time, mm-hmm. spending extra time with students, how that can quickly turn into something perversive or, you know, harmful to either the student or the teacher. Um, one of the most recent and popular representations is probably the television show Riverdale, where uh, the music teacher is actually, she's having an inappropriate relationship with her student, but it initially started off as her just wanting to give him extra help mm-hmm. and help him achieve his dreams as a, you know, he, he was okay in other subjects, but music was really his passion, and she had the connections, and so she really wanted to help him, but then it just turned into more. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that where it can get very slippery very quickly, how they show in media representations, like, this happened in, a, like, an episode. Mm-hmm. Like, this is very quick. So, you know, timing-wise, what does that look like? Um, uh, space, like we, we talked about earlier, resources, yeah. to have a private room somewhere um, that's closed off, um, to have resources um, allocated towards 
kind of like looking at it as like an equation. Mm -hmm. Space plus time plus, you know, student and teacher. Like, what is that equal to? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's kind of where we see some of these um, representations of, like, deviant behavior on students versus, you know, on teachers and that kind of coming together as perfect storms. And there's this, um, I mean, you you take us to a contemporary example, but if we jump back, like, 40-ish years, and, you know, is that classic police song, Don't Stand So Close to Me, which is about a young male teacher Mm -hmm. and a female student, um, and um, there's that sort of, like, near age kind of um, uh, experimenting Mm. sort of thing that happens, but then there's also a discourse of the older teacher as predator. Um, So these are just various sexualized scripts about teachers and students that just pop up all over the place. Well, but I think as we're also thinking about the implications that this has Mm -hmm. on, like, student-teacher relationships, it kind of, I don't know, continues to perpetuate this Mm -hmm. idea that, like, relationships can happen between students and teachers and um you know we would like to say maybe teachers wouldn't be susceptible to that but uh, right like there are news reports that like some teachers are and it's fair to say that students would be susceptible to that especially Mm -hmm. if they're seeing these things when they're younger so i think that uh, is is also a problematic threat i think it also shows up like, just in reality, when you have things like dress codes and, like, when you start to look at terms around, like, tightness of clothes for mm. students and teachers and, like, what that's kind of rooted in, yeah. you know, you question, like, is that because we have these representations out there of, you know, teachers doing inappropriate things with students and e- even the reality of there are some teachers who do inappropriate things with students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, unfortunately, and so it's, like, when you get down to even, like, the fundamentals of a school and the resources, you know, you have well-off schools who have resources to have uniforms, et cetera, that are certain fit for people Um, but in certain schools you don't have that and typically in these types of situations you'll see that it's not a private school where you'll see like the scandal happen in in media with like a student um, and their teacher or whatever it's typically these you know public schools that aren't well off where they'll have teachers more Mm -hmm. like prey Mm -hmm. um, like predators for the students who are prey or you'll have this conversation like I mentioned earlier of saying if you don't do this you know threatening students threatening teachers like I will do x y and z and then this will put you in a in a terrible situation. So that's where he's kind of deviant. It's, it's like I said, it's like an equation. The, the, the structure, the, the social class, et cetera, that they, they kind of build off to create mm-hmm. these images, to create this kind of backstory that they don't talk about for these characters to say, oh, this is why. Because the student was poor. Mm-hmm. They were more likely to be like attacked because a student came from a terrible family right. no one would listen to them anyways mm-hmm. like because of x y or z they, ne- they never spend time really shows are what 30 minutes mm-hmm. movies can be what an hour to 30 minutes something like that max generally mm-hmm. they don't tell these long backstories but as soon as you sit down and see these things or even when we're talking about you know gifts like as soon as you see those there it's just an image it has no story but yet it portrays a story to yeah. us that says well that teacher felt this way or that teacher's clothes really you know that mm-hmm. relationship is sexual because the way she's leaning over right um and like you know helping that person with their math problem and the way she the way her clothes are mm-hmm. it, it reinforces like they must have a sexual relationship mm-hmm. so it's things like that that kind of build off these expectations or these almost pre-warnings that we build within ourselves to say be careful of this or mm-hmm. don't act this way or if i act this way this might happen Well, but so in addition to these representations of teachers, there's also representations of students, right? There's the archetypes that, as we were talking about (laughs) earlier, are just so perfectly captured in The Breakfast Club. If you haven't seen The Breakfast Club, 
go go see it. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what else to say. Push pause and go watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I mean right, you have the jocks, you have the nerds who are just all about the academics. You you have those who play hooky, right? You have like the the goth kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Proto emo. Yeah, outcast. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there are these representations, and so when students are obviously like coming into their own, they see themselves. Oh, I must like. Yeah. into to one of these groups. But I guess in addition to that, one of the things that, like, I've always found fascinating is the way that, like, class, race, ethnicity, and, mm-hmm. and Chloe, you're talking about age, are presented in films, right? right? So, like, um, and Bring It On, starring... Yeah. Uh, uh, who, who, who is starring in that again? <laughs> Ms. Gabrielle Union. <laughs> uh, according to Brian, no one else was in, in the movie. I'm pretty sure she's the only one. <laughs> um... But, right, so when you see the way that this white school is portrayed, the homes that they live in, what Mm -hmm. their gym looks like compared to the school in Compton, Mm -hmm. right? It's this whole completely different picture that, like, tries to um, reify our images Mm -hmm. of, like, racial divisions within the country. Um, But I guess, I don't know, I shouldn't talk about this too much. Chloe, you're you're the one with all the insight here, so... (laughs) (laughs) are we all critical consumers we ought to be yeah i'm not that critical but (laughs) but you were talking earlier about like student identities and creations in these shows and can can you just elaborate on that yeah so i mean you kind of mentioned uh, you know the breakfast club um we also talked about shows like freaks and geeks Mm -hmm. um and you ask yourself a lot of these times are rooted in very short moments of someone saying they're interested in something Mm -hmm. if you're interested in sports you're a jock if you're interested in school, you're a nerd. If you're interested in social power, you're, you know, popular or something. Right. You know, if you're a mean girl, girl. Or exactly, yeah. you're a mean girl or something like that. That's how you keep your position. Um, well, and the borders know. are also, like, very static, yeah, right? Like, very... you can't be a jock and a nerd. No. It's, and I, exactly. not that I've seen well, Mean Girls musical. more than once. High but School like, Musical, uh, for example, you can't be both. Like, that's the whole uh, premise of High School Musical. He is, you know, he, he loves to sing, but he's he plays uh, basketball. He's the captain of the basketball team. And it's Zach Efron is Zach the captain of the basketball Efron team? Zach is the captain of the basketball team. Shh. And he... Point guard, maybe? Like, yeah. what are you talking about here? <laughs> Something like that, I think. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's the whole premise. Like, he's struggling because everyone says you have to pick one. You can't mm-hmm. do both. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I guess we can, <laughs> you can guess how this ends. There's Actually, some sequels, a, right? Right, yeah, there's okay. some sequels going on there. Um, but... This, exactly, it's very static. You can't. It, it reinforces you can't be both. You can't be, you well, know, smart and athletic. Well, and in Mean Girls, doesn't Lindsay Lohan like when she starts being a mean girl? Don't her grades drop? Exactly. Yeah. Yep, her yeah. grades drop. Um, she was like this math genius. Mathlete. Um, yeah, she was on the mathletes, and all of a sudden, in order to maintain her high social profile, she no longer could you know, be smart. She, she stopped studying. She stopped, you know, and it wasn't like she, she woke up just like a genius. So I'm going to take that back. She studied, mm-hmm. she, she worked for it. Mm-hmm. And when she stopped working for it, her grades dropped. Right. Um, and so at that point, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but that kind of reinforces like, you know, I, I liked that representation of it showed that she just didn't wake up smart. Like mm-hmm. she had to work for it. And when you stop working towards something, things can change. Your grades can drop. 
but nevertheless, the overall premise of Mean Girls is about social class, mm-hmm. um, and I, I guess also you know racial because none mm-hmm. of the Mean Girls are, <laughs> are black. So Lindsay Lohan herself is not black. So you know it's very you know not so much. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of representations of, of race except for the principal. Who mm-hmm. Ryan, if you want to take this Tim- part over? <laughs> oh man, I mean, there's just this moment where Tim Meadows like steps out into the hall when there's like a like a, you know a big argument going on, and his line is something like I. You know, I didn't. I didn't leave the South Side for this. Right. And, you know, and he like smashes the fire alarm. But like right away, it's like, I'm from the urban school, and I'm going to show right. these suburban white kids yeah. what's up. Exactly. Like, this oh. is how you know. This is how we do it. I can handle this. Yeah, I got I, a baseball you know. bat in my office. Right. You know, and he's I wearing like a, a, a t-shirt, like one of those like you know. Oh, I don't remember that yeah, part. He, yeah, he took off his shirt, so it's, he's like showing his muscles. He has his back. Yeah, yeah. Okay. it was like you know, like one of the tank tops yeah. from then, and he's it's just like. Really? Like, oh, is this what you did on the South Side? Is that why you're saying, like, this is what happens on the South Side? This is something that's normal, which is why you can handle it? Yeah. Um, But nevertheless, you have these, like, depictions of what students are based off of what they're interested in. And so if you've never, you know, which I I kind of argued earlier, it doesn't really start until you Mm -hmm. get into middle school. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you start to see these overt representations, but as I mentioned earlier, you also don't see actors playing the actual age of students, unless yeah. you're thinking of, like, Degrassi, mm-hmm. where the students who, the actors who they hired were actually the age, so you got to see them grow up as the age that they were actually supposed to be, whereas typically you'll have people like Heath Ledger playing, you know, a 16 or 17-year-old kid, and he's, like, 25 or 26. He was 18, and he pulled it off beautifully. <laughs> He was, he was 18 and <laughs> But issues like that, where you want to come to age of what you look like when you're in high school, what you look like when you're in middle school. Like, it's mm-hmm. just not realistic. And yet you expect these things, which is, you know, potentially why you have people expecting if you look older, you know, that's what you're supposed to look like. That's, that's what beauty is. Mm-hmm. When really you haven't grown yet. You're still blossoming. Like, you're not really meant to look like that until you are a certain age. And so it reinforces this whole thing of this is what I should look like. Mm-hmm. At sixteen or fifteen or fourteen or thirteen, right? But that's not what thirteen-year-olds actually look yeah. like. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, so I mean, we've talked about some of like the way that this impacts the way students and teachers think about the schools that they're in, the students they work with, the teachers they work with. Um, so for teachers who are both consumers and very often producers of this media, right, with their social media accounts. How do they navigate this going forward? Do they censor themselves? Do they disconnect? What happens? Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of us would agree censorship is bad um, <laughs> and problematic. Um, but this notion that we need to be critical consumers of the media and the messages that are put out there—that is to say, I can watch Riverdale, I can watch Mean Girls, I can watch the new Spider-Man movie, which a lot of it was set in a high school, and I can say, like, oh, this is a fairy tale about a high school, and I'm going to enjoy it for what it is, but I'm also going to recognize that that might be a problematic thing that is being said, Mm -hmm. or this character is, you know, it's not reality. It's just this this artifice, Um, and uh, some sort of, like, critical media literacy is really, really important here. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, this is the this is the problem of unmet expectations right. um, that you were describing before, Chloe. Yeah, the the real tension kind of comes at that point yeah. when you have to kind of face reality, but it's not what your expectations were. Mm-hmm. Kind of like building off what you said, we no longer as children we had fairy tales, um, and they were just so unrealistic that we understood them to be fairy tales. Right. You know, we we didn't find a house made out of cookies and chocolate and raindrops. You didn't. <laughs> 
I never found out they had had a cookie raindrops and gummy bears. Um, yeah. Congratulations, Matt, for my house. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to talk after about exactly where that house was. But, yeah. you know, just throughout fairies, things yeah. like that, castles um, that, you know, in America we don't have castles like that anymore where there's, you know, forests surrounded by it, things like yeah. that. So you could kind of separate your everyday interactions to a certain degree and say, like, what was pretend? But now when you see media representations, it's a lot harder to do that yeah. because you start to see certain traits within people that make you then box them into a certain category, and that's also reinforced back onto you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think media is great. When you talk about censorship, I know there are some, some professors and teachers who basically say, I'm going to put all of my social media on private. Um, because I don't want, <laughs> I don't want um, my students or you know, et cetera, to to see the way I engage with the world. Um, but there are others who are like, you know, it's 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 a public thing. So students do connect with you know educators online and continue the discussion. Yeah. Um, but then that kind of also has real world kind of consequences, which is if someone doesn't feel it's appropriate, um, you then have to answer to that. So there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that are part of the equation that kind of end up to whether it being a great thing or a bad thing or people figuring out, like, what my next step is, it's kind of depending on your own context um, and kind of sometimes what you're kind of posting. But nevertheless, like like you said, Brian, like, being a critical consumer is really important because it also helps us as people who are posting things. You know, yeah. we, we produce media as well, whether we acknowledge it or not. Well, and that's where I think the idea that censorship is bad and this is hard for me to just, like taken its hold because as someone who has not necessarily accepted friend requests from former students, although now that they're getting old enough, I may be willing to do that. Like there is part of my life that like, I don't think necessarily should be shared, but also with the idea of censorship, if there is, there's that gif of the teacher, she's at the board, like smiling and pointing menacingly. Like I'm not going to use that because that portrays an ideology of teacher that like, I'm not in favor of. Right. And maybe we're talking with different language, but, like, I would call that censoring myself, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not necessarily controlling what's being produced, but at least what I'm producing, Mm -hmm. I'm controlling. Right. And, sure, we can open up the definition of censorship. Sure. I don't know that I would call it censorship either, but... Sure, but nevertheless... I mean, we can get into a conversation. Right, there is that, there's that, there's still that reality of either you're producing it or you're letting other people produce these kind of expectations um, that's out there. And if they don't know what the reality is and they're just kind of reinforcing, which is very easy to do with a quick share or a a retweet or something that you think is funny, nevertheless, you're reinforcing that. And so to say, like, for yourself, like, I'm not going to be a part of it. I wouldn't retweet something like that. It's great. Maybe you would send out something else. There's, like, this dynamic. there's There's a parallel flow between the positive and the negative reinforcements of what we see in media. And... For us, I, I would recommend not disengaging because the negative representations, there's a lot of them. And we need people who really understand the reality that's happening and, and the joys of education to kind of counterbalance some of those negative representations and bring some reality and truth into that and say, this is actually what it is. And there's joy and there's happiness and there's excitement in teaching. There's excitement in being a student. There's an excitement in having a great building. But even the excitement in owning what you have and making the best out of it and enjoying that. Like, so I'd say... You convinced me. I'm going to join Snapchat. Yeah, I was, <laughs> was going to say, I don't, I, I don't think there's anything left to say. Yeah. I, I think Chloe summed it up. Um, so if you're interested in some of the articles that we have, of course, go to the show notes and we'll be talking through you through podcast land next week. Bye. Thanks, y'all. Bye.